The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for December 8th, 2021. Your old pal, Justin Robert Young here. Um, I don't know how to say this, but there's going to be a lot of talk about the male anatomy in this particular episode. I know that there are some of you that happen to listen to this with your children, and uh, uh, I don't know where you are in terms of nomenclature or understanding, but I would say if the word penis is not in their vocabulary, then this might not be an episode to play in the minivan. No, we're talking about wieners, dingalings, at least in two of our different stories. Uh, uh, first, we are going to have, and I am not, I'm not embarrassed by this transition, a remembrance for Bob Dole, who, late in his career, talked a little ween and ultimately became probably more beloved amongst pop culture for it. That is, of course, not the headline of his life. We will get into all the nitty-gritty detail there. Brian Camp in Georgia has an opponent, and it's fairly formidable. David Perdue, the man who very barely lost to John Ossoff in Georgia, will now challenge Brian Kemp in the Republican primary He is a fairly established candidate. Exactly what is his opening message and how well do I think he will do? We will discuss that. But let's get back to penises. Penis Politics is the new book by Karen Hinton. She is not only an uh, uh, ex-communication Shop uh, uh, Denison for Bill de Blasio, uh, but she also worked in D.C. And while he was the Housing and Urban Development Secretary, worked with now deposed governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. But her book is not simply a political memoir. No, it is also tales from her youth and navigating the world of male-dominated spaces, for which politics can certainly be considered one of them. The interview is great. I think you're going to love it. Bye! Bob Dole 
is no longer with us. According to the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, he died in his sleep at the age of 98. He is a survivor of not only multiple bouts of cancer before ultimately succumbing, but also an incredible politician. And by many accounts, a truly remarkable man. And we're going to talk about all that in this segment. But ultimately, you know, there, there's a saying that funerals are for the living. That when we think about the heroes that have come before us, the lives that they lived were for them. The lessons they leave are for us. And if Bob Dole was a remarkable constant throughout his life, there is one lesson that I believe is sorely, sorely needed in our modern political meta. And that is this. Bob Dole was a truly exceptional loser. But let's not start there. Let's start with why we think of Bob Dole the way that we think of him. Indeed, there is a story that uh, <laughs> a friend of mine's brother was a cop down in Fort Lauderdale. And during the 1996 campaign, Bob Dole came down on a campaign stop through Miami. And so he's coming through to greet all of the different law enforcement uh, members who uh, were there. And my friend's brother decides that he is going to, in his right hand, hold a pen in the iconic fashion that Bob Dole did. Now, before I tell you Bob Dole's response, let me explain to you why Bob Dole held that pen in his right hand, in the manner for which he did for the entirety of his public life. Charging a German position in northern Italy in 1945, Dole was hit by a shell fragment that crushed two vertebrae and paralyzed his arms and legs. The young army platoon leader spent three years recovering in a hospital and never regained the use of his right hand. To avoid embarrassing those who tried to shake that right hand, Dole always clutched a pen and reached out with his left. Now let's pause here. Let's think of every thin-skinned politician story that we have heard. Politicians that don't get the right salad and berate their staff. Politicians that make mistakes and then lie and say that they never really did it. So to go back to our story, Bob Dole is in the middle of a presidential campaign that is pretty much destined to lose from the moment that he starts it. He gets up and this young cop is making fun of the fact that Bob Dole always carries a pen in his hand. And Bob Dole looks at it, looks at the cop, and says, oh, geez. Gives him a big smile and thanks him for helping with this campaign stop. 
Didn't give him a dirty look. Didn't pretend it wasn't there. Acknowledged the joke. Took it as a compliment. And thanked the man for being there. Let's go to 1976. Dole is the vice presidential nominee and is debating the eventual vice president, Walter Mondale. Now, in this, he gets a little spicy during a question about why Dole supported a pardon for Richard Nixon along with uh, Ford, who he was on, on the ticket with. Dole deflects to another topic a.k.a. the war started under Democratic presidents. When you were running for the Senate, you said that the pardon was prematurely granted and that it was a, and that it was a mistake. You approve of it now, and if the issue was fair game in your 1974 campaign in Kansas, why is it not an appropriate topic now? It is an appropriate topic, I guess, but it's not a very good issue any more than the war in Vietnam would be or World War II or World War One, or the war in Korea, all Democrat wars. All in this century, I figured up the other day, if we added up the killed and wounded in Democrat wars in this century, it'd be about 1.6 million Americans, enough to fill the city of Detroit. Now, vice presidential candidates are historically the attack dogs of their campaigns. And that, whew, that one is, that one is spicy even by modern standards. For anybody who thought that Bob Dole was just this kindly old man who didn't have any teeth, that man just laid millions of dead bodies at the foot of one political party. Now, he was criticized for this. Mondale shot back at Dole after it that he had richly earned his reputation as a hatchet man. And after an initial weaselly, well, that's not really what I said, Dole owned up to it. And he had this line. I was supposed to go for the jugular. And I did. It was my own. You know, in, in doing research for this segment, you see so many, uh, so many just kind of one-liners from Bob Dole. And there is, I think, an understandable admiration between Bob Dole and various comedians. We're going to get to that in a second. Dole's best known public foray was the 1996 election, wherein he was the GOP nominee against running for re-election Bill Clinton. Now, a reminder, this is before Lewinsky. This is after the Hillary care push. So Bill Clinton is still very popular, but has yet to become the controversial character that he would become after Lewinsky. I mean, he was still controversial. Like, I mean, this is the rise of Rush Limbaugh and, and, and stuff like that. This is post the, the uh, uh, Republican revolution that brought Newt Gingrich to power. So it's not like he's universally popular, but he's popular enough with enough people that he's probably going to win. And in the optics of this election, there could not be more of an opposite uh, pairing, right? You've got, for the Democrats, the spry future of America, the bridge to the 21st century. Don't 
Stop thinking about tomorrow, Clinton, versus the caricature of a Republican, a crusty old white guy. And of course, it didn't help that at the time, Bob Dole was 73, the oldest man to ever seek the office of the presidency for the first time. Now, in our modern context, 73 looks like a real spring chicken. Since then, we've elected a 75 and a 79-year-old to be president. But back then, Bob Dole was the oldest person anyone could imagine. And by the way, he did himself no favors. Once referred to the Brooklyn Dodgers on the trail. The Brooklyn Dodgers. At the time that he said it, the Dodgers had been in Los Angeles for 38 years. So Bill runs circles around him and Dole gets his ass kicked. But I want to play you something, and and it's going to be a longer clip, but I think you guys are really going to appreciate it. Only days after he loses that election, Bob Dole goes on David Letterman. As you're going to hear him say, Bob uh, had uh, previously unofficially announced he was going to run for president on The Letterman Show. Now, before we play the clip, let me let me just make this clear. There are few things on earth that I can think of that are as humiliating as losing a run for president. Like, all right, let's do a little calculus in our head. If we are going to measure humiliation by the failure that you do or the mistake that you make times how many people are watching. So if I step on a rake and hit myself in the face and I'm by myself, that's not really all that humiliating. Unless I want to tell people that that happened, no one's going to know. If I do that in front of a hundred people, that's pretty humiliating. If I do it in front of 10,000 or 100,000 or a million or several million, then it gets worse and worse and worse. Running for president means that you are in front of the free world. And the unfree world is probably paying attention too. So when you lose, not only does everybody in your orbit, everybody in your country, know you lost, but they probably know why you lost. And they probably knew you were going to lose before you did. So it is with all that being said, that at the lowest of lows, Bob Dole goes back on Letterman. Have a seat, Senator. Thank you. Welcome back to the uh, Late Show. Thank you. Bob, what have you been doing lately? Not... (laughs) Uh, apparently not enough, but in any event. <laughs> but uh, I, I had a question for the president. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how about two out of three? <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
That, 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 to me, that brings up a question that I think everybody had. The, the, the last 96-hour blitz deal, right. how the hell could you survive that? How could you do that? I, you know, we're half an hour into this thing, and I need a nap. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know what you're going to be in four cities in, what, four weeks? That's yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a... <laughs> that, that, that's a hectic pace, but somebody <laughs> somebody has to do it. Makes you sound like <laughs> a sissy, doesn't it? Yeah, well, we, you know, we did everything. I jumped off stage in Chico, California. Uh, we tried to excite. In fact, on the way down, you know, I fell off the stage. I dove into the crowd. And uh, on, the, on the way down, my cell phone rang. And a trial lawyer said, Bob, I think we got a case. Yeah! <laughs> So we, we had a lot of fun. The election, and you, uh, you, you have to talk to uh, President Clinton. And uh, had you talked to him much during the campaign directly? Probably not, I wouldn't think. Not, not a lot. We, we sort of talked past each other. We yeah. had two debates, but nobody showed up. <laughs> and, uh, but I called him, Cleck. And, uh, <laughs> but, but we had a very good visit. You know, we had a good visit. He, what do you say to him on the phone in, in uh, a moment like that? I said, I lost. But, I, you know, I said, congratulations, Mr. President, uh, you won, it wasn't close. Uh, we both worked very hard, and I said, you know, let's get together and talk about it, not talk about it, but talk about America sometime. I, my slogan was a better man for a better America, but I'm going to head for Florida, my slogan's going to be a better tan for a better America. <laughs> there is no shame in losing an election. Sure. Ding-dongs like me might make a joke about you or give you a nickname, and some donors might not call you back as soon as you'd like, but it doesn't define you. And that loss, nor the loss back in the 70s when he was running for vice president, defined Bob Dole. Because Bob Dole went on to become pretty beloved. He was a reliable pitch man for many products after this, but most notably... When I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, I was primarily concerned with ridding myself of the cancer. But secondly, I was concerned about possible post-operative side effects like erectile dysfunction, ED, often called impetus. Yes, friends, before the side-by-side -side bathtubs during golf broadcasts, before every male-hosted podcast started shilling for Roman and Blue Chew, Bob Dole cared about your boner. That ad, by the way, was sponsored by Pfizer, the maker of Viagra. So when he's saying, go consult your doctor about remedies, for erectile dysfunction, they're only going to recommend you one pill. And it served as the beginning of the now omnipresent advertisements for these treatments. And while that ad was serious, Bob Dole very much had a sense of humor about all this. In fact, he did other ads that referenced his role as the stiffy supplier. Here's my favorite. I can't remember if I've talked about it on this show before, but it's something that I find to be iconic. This is a Pepsi ad that aired during the Super Bowl. In it, 
Britney Spears is dancing and the world literally cannot look away. Comically, men, women, children, old people, they are stopping what they are doing because the muse of the moment is shaking it in front of these Pepsi trucks. There is a, a you know, a women at a bowling league that are trying to mimic the dances. There is a, a short order cook who is slack jawed watching the television so transfixed that the grill behind him has been set aflame and the fire department needs to be called. The staff of a local Coca-Cola bottling plant are all eyes on the television watching Britney. But the end, the end of the ad is what I want to point you to. Here's the clip. Easy boy. In 2001, when this ad aired, it cost $2.2 million to run a 30-second ad. That ad is a minute long, meaning that the PepsiCo Corporation may have spent over $4 million for an ad that ends with Bob Dole sitting on a chair next to him, smiling, when the dog barks and Bob's only line is easy boy. The joke laid out for tens of millions that cost anywhere between four and five million dollars to just place, let alone produce, is that Bob Dole has a boner watching Britney Spears dance and he's smiling about it. What a Chad. They then go further to do a full parody ad of Viagra specifically for Pepsi. So you're watching the Super Bowl and you think that there's a Bob Dole Viagra ad, but it's for Pepsi. You listen to this. Hi, I'm Bob Dole. And I've always spoken to you, frankly, no matter what the subject. That's why I'm eager to tell you about a product that put real joy back in my life. It helps me feel youthful, vigorous, and most importantly, vital again. What is this amazing product? My faithful little blue friend, an ice cold Pepsi Cola. Are the revitalizing effects? It's no surprise that probably the most iconic impression of Bob Dole, which was done by Norm MacDonald, uh, was something that Bob Dole loved. Here is a clip of them together on Saturday Night Live. And then briefly after that, you're going to hear Norm MacDonald talking about him uh, to. Conan O'Brien. I, I don't think so. Oh, really? Because, you know, it'd be good for me. <laughs> you know, kind of help you keep you on the front pages, you know? Now, believe me, Norm, running for president doesn't always keep you in the front pages unless you, of course, take a dive off a podium. <laughs> yeah, that did get a lot of coverage, didn't it? Yeah, and thanks for noticing here on uh, Saturday Night Live. I appreciate it. <laughs> I don't write a lot of this stuff. How do you? (laughs) The greatest offense of all. (laughs) I didn't write it. (laughs) 
Was it was it really uh, was it fun working with him? It was exciting. Oh yeah, because he's my hero. He's been my hero for a long time. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and uh, you know, to meet your hero. Do you have a hero? Uh, Norman Fell from Three's Company. That's your hero. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Roper. Yeah. Mr. Roper. True to form of Norm MacDonald, uh, he then started talking about gay porno. Uh, also insane that Bob Dole survived Norm MacDonald. Now, I, I want to end this segment by going back to something. I want to go back by understanding that while losing these big races did not define Bob Dole, his grace in them is again a lesson that our modern political world is sorely, sorely lacking. The ability to say that I ran my best it's not that I like my opponent or agree with him anymore. It's not that I want to dishonor those who believed in me. I still do. But guess what? At the end of the day, the American political system is about running as hard as you can and understanding when you didn't measure up. If we put leaders into positions based on decency and sense of humor then Bob Dole would have eclipsed FDR's reign as president of the United States he didn't but he never let it get him down and he never let it degrade his character I'm going to leave you with this quote from Bob Dole this was made uh, at the end of 2020. The election is over and Joe Biden will be president on January 20th. I know the president has not conceded and he may never concede, but he will not be in the White House on January 21st. That's a pretty bitter pill for Trump, but it's a fact that he lost. And it'll take him a while to accept that. Regardless of where you land on the political compass, regardless of what you think of Bob Dole's policies, there is no doubt that the kind of grace he exhibited is something we can all remember as we move forward. For Bob Dole, that would be what Bob Dole would want. Bob Dole. David Perdue. I'm running for governor to make sure Stacey Abrams is never governor of Georgia. Make no mistake, Abrams will smile, lie, and cheat to transform Georgia into her radical vision of a state that would look more like California or New York. To fight back, we simply have to be united. Unfortunately, today, we are divided, and Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger are to blame. Look, I like Brian. This isn't personal. It's simple. He has failed all of us and cannot win in November. Instead of protecting our elections, he caved to Abrams. That is David Perdue. He is the former senator from the Peach State of Georgia. He has the uh, dubious distinction of having lost to John Ossoff, of all people. Um, 
he is now, as he mentioned there, running for the governorship of Georgia, which is interesting because he's a Republican and the Republicans already have the state house in Georgia. Brian Kemp is the current occupant there, and he is indeed running for re-election. What he doesn't have is the blessing of Donald John Trump. That is something that David Perdue does have. And so instead of David Perdue running for Senate, which would not be his old seat, but the other seat from Georgia, he is now going to take the messier path and try to win a statewide race by first defeating, defeating Brian Kemp in a primary. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Number one, Purdue's a pretty good politician, and I don't think he would have lost his Senate seat if either Trump had not uh, uh, turned that election into a voter suppression uh, operation for driving away Republican votes because people were so disenchanted by his loss in Georgia if he would have just kind of taken that with grace and said, hey, look, we, we really, really, really need you to get back out there and vote for Purdue and Leffler. I think they probably both would have won. Instead, he made everything a loyalty test. And also, David Purdue got COVID for the final two weeks of the race, and he was not campaigning. So should both of those things not have happened? It is just my hunch that... Maybe Warnock beats Leffler, but I don't believe that Ossoff beats Purdue and the Republicans continue to keep control of the Senate. Unlike what happened, which is the Democrats got control of the Senate and have done so much with it. Still, Purdue has won statewide. He is not a super Trumpy face to the idea of a... GOP challenge to Kemp. He is probably going to run more of a subdued campaign than somebody that would, you know, uh, sing karaoke with Lynn Wood, uh, uh, you know, the, the way that you would think of a parody of a MAGA challenge to Kemp. And he's a known, he's a known guy. It's interesting that in his opening, he's already running against Stacey Abrams. And he views his challenge to Kemp as Kemp capitulating to Stacey Abrams. There's not a lot of talk about how this is a, a total travesty and, and, and the election was stolen. He blames it all on Kemp conceding to Stacey Abrams before the election ever happened. This is probably the most palatable way that you can sell Donald Trump's I never lost the election line in a primary. You know, normally in a primary, you say the, the, the biggest, hairiest version of what you mean. Uh, but here he's kind of trying to craft a message. How will Kemp run against him? That is a question. What is not in question is that Donald Trump has already endorsed David Perdue. Looks like I'm going to have to go back to Georgia. Politics. 
The Politics, Politics, Politics program is brought to you by everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Man, I, I wish that I wish that Patreon had gift, you know, options. I wish people were just able to, uh, you know, say, "Hey, I, I, I got you a, uh, I got you a, a gift to PX3." But if you are a fan of the show, or you know a fan of the show, and you want to get him something special, something that isn't going to run up against the supply chain isn't going to run up against inflation, well, you can do so by heading on over to my Cameo. I don't really plug the Cameo stuff a lot, but it's always there. And I do know that for a fun little stocking stuffer, uh, uh, it is it is a good uh, a good time. So head on over there right now. Look me up. Jury. J-U-R-Y. I'll be happy to uh, give any political opinions, uh, answer any questions that you want, and of course, do personal messages to you and yours on this holiday season. Jury, J-U-R-Y, on Cameo, and uh, I will uh, uh, thank you for anybody doing that. Uh, of course, we also have physical merch that can be found at politicsmerch.com, and... Well, you know, if if we're dealing with like husbands and wives or boyfriends and girlfriends or or any significant other situation and 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 you know that they would really love all the bonus content that we have on this show including the Monday episodes that recap the Sunday talk shows and the Thursday episodes which are our late edition, the latest news that breaks will be covered there. Well, you can do so at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And if you want to actually give somebody a, a, a gift situation uh, that doesn't involve Patreon, I'll just get you an RSS feed that you can plug into the podcatcher of your choice and get you all the bonus stuff. You can always hit me up. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. A lot of information, but a lot of ways that you can interact with the PX3 show for the holiday season. Thank you. There can be no doubt that various organizations have memories. Various leaders will find paths of least resistance. And bad behavior is often curdled and overflowing in dark corners. It's in these areas that I think anybody can reasonably understand that misogyny rears its ugly head. It's something that I've been around for most of my life growing up as the son of a single mother. And while there are few vocations that truly have personalities, the worlds of politics and, and sports are two of them. And it's with that that we bring on Karen Hinton. Karen's new book is called Penis Politics, which for the eye-catching name is truly about her journey. One that led her from Mississippi 
to Washington, D.C., and eventually in the employ of two names for which you will know very well, Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio. She is here to talk not only about her experience in the New York City and New York State political scene, but also her perspective on everything involved in gender dynamics, power, and everything in between. And so let's welcome her. Welcome to the show, Karen. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Now, I, I kind of feel like this, as soon as you wrote a book called Penis Politics, like you, you had to come on this show just because our audience and myself included, it is absolutely catnip. We are fascinated with the reality of running campaigns and government beyond the slogans and, and the chants, the reality of what it is and something that is literally the 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 title on the book being so direct is is something that we we had to explore so let's start here uh what is penis politics and how important are they to the day-to-day operations of the roles that you have held throughout your political career great question um as the subtitle says penis politics is a memoir about women, men, and power. Um, It's not all women, but most women, and it's not all men, Um, but it is always about power. And yeah, some people may find the title kind of (laughs) shocking, but penis politics is about conduct that's much more shocking than the official name of a a body part. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's about discrimination, harassment, abuse, and misogyny. And it's illegal in most states. And I wanted to come up with a shocking name to something women struggle with and live with from small everyday harassments and abuses in the spectrum all the way to violence and rape. Um, And it is more than just about the abusive use of modern day politics. It's about how all of us, all women, have to navigate the world that powerful men create for them, whether they are, whether the men are politicians, fathers, teachers, coaches, professors, bosses, CEOs, um, or your male colleagues. I mean, I, I think it is from the law firm to the grocery store, from the doctor's office to uh, restaurant waitresses. I mean, it's it's a really just pervasive in the entire cultural society of our country. So I, I want to uh, drill down more into politics in a second, but I do want to stay on this theme because I know it's it's a, it is a large guiding force of the book itself, and and not only is this a a political memoir, but also a memoir kind of just about professional women and women in general, in the fields you've worked in, in your career, how have these dynamics changed the most? And let me just ask you more specifically, what has changed the most in your opinion? And then on the flip side, what has been as bad as it's ever been? Another good question. Okay. So let me think about that. I think that penis politics is woven into the fabric of our lives. We experience it everywhere, in romance, in sports, home, in school. 
And one of the first experiences that I had with what I now call penis politics was in high school playing basketball. And a school official abused one of my very closest friends. Mm-hmm. What, he did, what he did to her was emotionally and physically brutal. And in most states, it's a crime. That was 50 years ago. But look what is happening in girls and women's sports today. It hasn't changed in terms of what some men, not all men, but some men have done to their players or to the associations they have with young girls, young women. And the, the, the best thing that has happened, though, in just this past year or two, has been the young women speaking out about what's happening to them. And I think that is where we are seeing change. It started in 2017 with the Me Too movement, but it's continued and it's grown and grown every day. Every morning when I wake up, I look at my Google alerts on sexual harassment. And during the day, I probably get close to 100 different articles about sexual harassment, some form of it. Um, It could be in sports a lot, but it's also in other aspects. It could be at a big tech firm. Um, It could be at a, a, a law firm. It could be in politics. And it's so it's just everywhere. And I think no matter at what level you are, where you work, where you live, I want women to feel the strength of speaking out. And that's what I hope my book accomplishes. You mentioned sports and politics, and and those are two situations where I often see as a fan of of both that you have these greater allegiances that tend to tamp things down. There is nothing more ugly, and I'm sure as a, a, a woman from Mississippi, you know all too well, there is nothing more more ugly than the conversations of a, a sexual assault or rape allegation against a, a, a popular college football player. Uh, uh, it is. It, it tends to be extraordinarily tribal. It tends to be uh, very much whitewashed because the people that are there are there because they believe in the team and they want the player that gives them the best chance to win to be on the field, regardless of where that brings them morally when it comes to these issues. I tend to find a lot of the same stuff happens in politics, that if there is an ugly allegation that happens to be conflicting with the fact that a candidate or or, or a person that you believe could make a positive change in the world, you tend to sand off the edges and, and whitewash stuff. Do you think that these issues foster these problems? Absolutely. Um, I see that all the time. Uh, In fact, my book now is available for people to purchase online on Amazon. So many of my friends growing up in Mississippi, they're now my age. They have gotten the book and they're not happy with me in some respects because I have talked about coaches. I don't name any particular coach. Mm-hmm. I don't name any particular school official. Um, and I, I give different names to the young girls that I'm so close to and I talk about our lives. But they, they recognize, they think they recognize some of these people. 
and they are not happy with me. They're so upset. And I think that's because they hold these school officials and teachers from the past very close to their hearts and to their brain. And so for me to say something that might change the, that vision, then that's very upsetting. And, we, and I've certainly seen this with uh, Andrew Cuomo in New York. Mm-hmm. Look, this guy did a lot of great things for New York. I don't take that away from him. Um, the work he did on um, uh, on uh, marriages on uh, I'm sorry, I'm losing my thought. My um, gay marriages, yeah, right? Marriage equality, and sure. Marriage equality. Thank you. Yeah. Marriage equality, as well as um, uh, family leave, minimum wage, even infrastructure building. I mean, he's really taken hold of a lot of problems and tried to work on them and did very well. At the same time, I can't dismiss what he has done as governor with the women, most of them, the women in his office, and they're young. And this really impacts them for their lifetime. And I know that. I know that from seeing it myself when I was young. So Uh, you're right. Yes. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Finish your thought. No, I'm just going to say you're right. These I and oh, well, let me just finish. These um, people who uh, supporters who have loved Andrew Cuomo for years are now very upset that this has happened, and some of them are critical of the eleven women plus me um, who have accused him of sexual harassment and abuse. And I was just going to bring that up just for for yeah. for folks who know, and this is stuff that you can look up online. But Karen has accused uh, then uh, HUD Secretary Cuomo of a, uh, a improper sexual advancement, and that's something that you have been very public about. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I guess here's here's let me let me let me bring it to something that is a little bit more uh, uh, recent around this because what baffled me as an outsider watching this. And maybe you can give me some perspective as somebody who's been around both New York City and New York State politics is that Governor Cuomo faced very serious allegations before the attorney general investigation. He had the nursing home issue and the optics of writing a book about how great he was at handling covid while covid was still very bad. Uh, But nothing pushed things to a boiling point until those sexual assault allegations. From your perspective, why was that the straw that broke the camel's back? The investigations into the nursing home scandal are are underway. And I am confident that whatever comes out of that will help the sadness and uh, anger that so many families of uh, uh, individuals who died in nursing home have can't blame them for that. I don't know what the investigation will find. Um, whether it will be, did he cause those um, those deaths, or did he just hide the numbers yeah. of the the people who the number of people who were moved from the hospital where there were be- much much better care than yeah. back into the. I mean, we'll see what that brings. And I, I'm confident that, that we'll get a, a fair, in-depth report on that. And I hope it will be soon. Um, so what pushed, I think, the 11 women coming forward yeah. was, was, in fact, Representative Ron Kim 
and Lindsay Boylan, who was the first woman to talk about the harassment. Um, uh, Lindsay Boylan came out first talking about what happened to her, but it never really grabbed anyone at first. It just sort of sat there for a while. And then Ron Kim came out and said he was bullying him and threatened to destroy his career because Ron Kim was being critical of the nursing home scandal. Yeah. And I think both of those things really just impacted these other women who have been holding it back, wondering, you know, if this was something they should talk about. Because women often don't want to talk about it. They hold it in. They don't tell anybody. And I think because it just upsets the, the barrel cart, it just makes them feel like, oh, I'll get fired or they'll accuse me of what happened. They, they'll say I'm a liar, which, in fact, is what happened yep. when they all spoke up. Um, so I, th- I think that is what really lit the fire on on what happened. Do you think that you would have seen the outpouring of, of, of women if Cuomo had not been damaged politically by the nursing home scandal, if he was still as popular as ever and maybe his book sells a lot more and he's still doing his brother comedy act on CNN? Like, do you think that the that that the environment would be right for these women to come forward? I do. I do think that because of the Me Too movement. And I also think women, young women, not women my age. But young, I'm 63, but young women in their 20s and 30s, they are smarter than we were about this issue. They're going like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, what's happening here? Why is this happening? And they heard about the stories coming out of Hollywood, as well as mm-hmm. the stories coming out of the media networks. Um, so I, I think that was in part, in part, Um, why this thing resonates even without the nursing home scandals. Though I do think it helps. It helped because people now are really questioning why he's incapable of taking any criticism and being so afraid of mistakes. Uh, Look, there were other states in the country who did the same thing he did with nursing homes. Yeah. Uh, but, But... and, and unfortunately, that's what happened. And that is in part because of the Trump administration talking about that very subject. I don't know. I don't know why it happened that way, because I've been in nursing homes. I know that they don't have the care that a hospital would have. Nonetheless, it was done. But then he goes and tries to hide the numbers. Yes. And I've seen him do that in other things. So because he wants to protect himself from any criticism. Um, a good politician, I, be- I believe these days, needs to accept the mistake, try very hard to fix it, and apologize and help the families or the individuals who are harmed and damaged. Um, but he will not do that. That's not his nature. Can you describe for folks that that are not in New York the divide between Albany and New York City, the the office of the governor and the office of the mayor? It's always been there, this divide. Um, Mayors of New York City have always uh, fought with the governors. And it's hard to understand other than New York City has 8 million people. 
The rest of the state has 8 million people. So New York City feels like it's its own state. So they want to do things that they need to do for people who are jammed into each other. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different atmosphere. It's a whole different set of problems in many cases than the rest of the state. So the governors and mayors have argued over what to do, what not to do, where the money goes, where it doesn't go. Um, and a governor has to win with votes from the other part of the state. So it's a tussle that way. But with Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio as mayor, these were two individuals who had been friends when Bill de Blasio worked for Andrew Cuomo at HUD. And I believe Andrew Cuomo thought that Bill de Blasio would follow him and would do what he told him to do, just like at HUD. The former mayor before de Blasio was Michael Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. Michael Bloomberg did whatever he wanted to do. Why? Because he had money. Yes. He didn't need a campaign contribution. He didn't need um, help from the real estate industry. He, you know, he didn't need any of that. He, uh, he, 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 he didn't need term limits. You know, <laughs> he, he wrote it so he exactly. could run, run again. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, now then Bill de Blasio comes along and Andrew says, oh, thank God. Whew, now I've got somebody who'll do what I tell him to do, just like everybody else who's ever worked for him. You've got to be loyal and you've got to stay on his message. But he's mayor now of a large place, a big, you know, bustling place, complicated with a lot of different issues. And the two of them just locked horns. And, you know, I went to work for Bill de Blasio thinking that I could somehow uh, be helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, my my idealism <laughs> that I was going to usher in Kumbaya or something was quickly shattered because Andrew didn't want it. He he hated me. He called me disloyal. He called me a traitor. I mean, it was bizarre. And um, because I wanted to try to be helpful, but I couldn't be the the the, the locking horns. I couldn't get them undone. From the outside, as COVID began to grow, one of the things as I was watching things get as bad as they did in New York City and having friends and family that are there and and having, you know, whatever personal stake is there, the one thing politically that I couldn't shake is that the disunion between Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio was having a material, if not deadly effect on that first wave, if not going forward. Do you think that that's an overstatement from your perspective? No, no, it's not. New Uh, York. Go ahead. Oh, yes, sure. And I was just saying that it's not an overstatement because I do believe that New Yorkers have suffered because of it, that certain things didn't get done as well as it should have been done because the two of them argued about it. I mean, look, remember with COVID, Mayor de Blasio came out first Mm -hmm. and basically said lockdown, basically said we need to take really drastic measures to stop this because that's what the CDC was saying. And that's what other people 
in high positions, understanding science, um, was saying. The governor at that time said, whoa, wait a minute, let's back up. Let's wait and see how it plays out first. And finally, the governor figured out, okay, that's the way to go. And then he started doing what he did, as we all know, which was all great, but the mayor did it too. And the fact that they that they disagreed at that first moment in time on COVID was harmful to the way it all played out later. Um, so I do think, yes, it's very, it's been very harmful for New York City residents as well as the rest of the state. It, it, it just, it just, you know, totally, uh, uh, it was it was a very disheartening you know kind of moment watching in in a crisis that I think everybody can understand is something that uh, uh, was deadly was killing you know uh, thousands of people a day and oftentimes that amount in New York City uh, uh, over you know a a month or several week period that beyond the fact that we were having this during an election year where you can understand that a very controversial president is going to argue with, you know, uh, governors of of certain blue states, that even within the Democratic Party, the egos were so intractable with those two guys specifically, two people that you know very well, uh, uh, that that there could not be, you know, just some kind of meeting of the minds you know, a, 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 a side-by-side leadership coalition on something that was so pressing is, is, it sounds from your voice that, that, that was not necessarily a a surprising thing that they couldn't come together during that moment. Not after working for the mayor for a year, no way that I could imagine the two of them coming together, even when it's something as awful and, you know, just monstrous in so many ways, it's COVID. Um, But that's just the way Andrew Cuomo operates. Bill de Blasio gave up. He just gave up. He was beaten down for so long. He just, just I think he just tried to make the name Governor Andrew Cuomo just float away from his brain. So, um, you know, if if Andrew Cuomo had approached Bill, and said, hey, let's work together on this. This is so important. Yeah. No, that will not happen. And I also make one, <laughs> want to make this one point that um, in the nursing home, most of the people in the nursing home were women. Mm-hmm. And most of the people working in the nursing homes who also got COVID were women. So the decisions are being made by powerful men in powerful positions in Washington and New York City, and the women suffered the most. And so when we, when we really look at this, this is another penis politics play where power, control, and authority is the most driving motivation of too many of our politicians making decisions about COVID. Donald Trump is a very good example of that. And so many um, women in positions as waitresses, um, you know, as grocery store workers in the nursing homes, they were uh, uh, exposed to COVID in more ways than men were. And I, I just think this is just another penis politics play. 
Let me ask you something. You know, we had a a, a economics uh, expert on a few weeks ago, and he made the point that uh, if you look at our economics numbers as they as as people return to the workforce, the people that are not are often women, and specifically uh, mothers. He made the point that this has been a trend that has happened. Uh, uh, even pre-COVID that has been exacerbated by the fact that uh, uh, there was a disruption to things, but many women are simply deciding that the cost of childcare and the loss of time with their children, often young children, is too much to bear, and that these women are are not going to return to the workforce, at least in the numbers that they might have beforehand. I know this is kind of uh, uh, outside of the 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 nitty gritty of of New York State and New York City politics, but it certainly is a women's issue. What is your thought on that? Thank you for bringing that up. I wish I'd thought of it sooner. Um, I I do believe that it's a definitely an impact on women's professional careers because the cost of daycare does uh, demand that they take so much out of their paychecks just for that. And they wonder, why am I doing this exactly? Maybe I'm doing it because I like to get out of the house and be with other people and work and use my own talent and expertise. But I can't do it because it's I'm not getting any money from it, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, you're right, the, the gentleman that you had on earlier is right. It, it started before COVID. And it is part of the whole challenge of women's rights to come together and deal with these issues. We and white women and black women need to come to and women of color need to come together and work on these issues because it really, in so many ways, impacts women of color. And the problem that really needs to get solved is just the discrimination and the misogyny and the uh, harassment that may not have anything to do with sex. It just has to do with a dismissal of women in the workplace. And uh, I just, you know, that is something that we really need to deal with nationwide. And I'm, I'm thankful that the Attorney General Tish James in New York brought this, uh, did this investigation and believed those women because so often women are not believed. And she took it out publicly. And I hope other attorney generals, other governors will really make this an issue because it does impact the economy of their states. Um, I've been, I read this one study that talked about how the, um, the profits of companies that have been known to have large amounts of sexual harassment claims brought against them turn out to be lower than the profits of companies that don't have so many cases Mm -hmm. of sexual harassment. And that's because they lose talent from women or they push them down to the point where they're not producing as they would if they didn't have this harassment and discrimination and misogyny going on in the workplace. And also that the share profit the um, the the share what shareholders makes is lower in those same companies. So this is truly not just a sort of a moral ethical issue. It's also an economic issue. 
Uh, a couple questions here, and, and we will get you out on this, about things that are happening currently. Uh, one of your old bosses, Bill de Blasio, uh, mayor of New York, is uh, ending his term in uh, the next few uh, weeks. Uh, what is his legacy to New York City? His legacy is what we just talked about, pre-kindergarten, pre-K. He pushed for that right when he stepped into office. And he didn't let go of it and he made it happen. Um, and so I think that is his greatest legacy. When you send, when you don't send your child to daycare at that age and you send them to pre-K, <laughs> which is free, you've saved, what, $10,000 a year. And that was a huge economic advantage for parents by not having to send that child to daycare, but send them to a very good pre-K. So I think that's his greatest legacy. He's also done a lot of tremendous work in uh, affordable housing. And that is tough. That is very hard to solve in eight years <laughs> um, because we've had problems with affordable housing across the country for decades, but certainly in New York City. And he has tried to put more funds into building affordable housing to also improve um, issues around the homeless, especially in the area of mental health. He's made mental health an issue now that people talk about more vocally than they ever have pub and publicly. Um, and, you know, so mental health is just as terrible as physical health as body health. And so I, I think that bringing those issues out front is another part of his le legacy. If I gave you a hundred dollar bill and you had to bet it on somebody that would be the next governor of New York state, would you bet it on Bill de Blasio? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> he's, he's not going to win. He can't get upstate. And he can't, there's a lot of New York City he won't be able to, to take. Um, and I, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think he'll win by any significant margin at all. So this is another, another, another presidential run. It's just a thing he'll, he'll do for fun, I guess, <laughs> to print some well, signs. You know, um, Mayor de Blasio is like a professor. Um, when, you know, a professor starts his class, and sometimes it might be about biology, but he makes sort of a, phys, uh, a psychological statement. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and it's all about the meaning of this and the meaning of that. And I love, I love that in college and I still love to listen to professors speak. But when you're mayor, <laughs> you can't do that. You know? yeah. So I think in his mind, he thinks he can win. I, he thinks he can convince people that he's the best choice. And and they're not going to believe him. And I don't know that he'd make a bad governor. He would make a good governor. But he's not the governor for New York right now. Final question. Uh, uh, Chris Cuomo, the brother of Andrew Cuomo, has now not only been fired from CNN, but also his radio gig at Sirius XM. In that process, was there anything that transpired that surprised you? No, except for the sexual harassment charges that have been leveled against him. 
Yeah, the the ones, the one, the ones that are reportedly were, were were the straw that broke the camel's back uh, with CNN. Right, there are two, and both of them surprised me. I, and I don't know what motivated him, um, but it just seemed like a really stupid thing to do in today. The same with his brother. But what you you grab a woman's ass? I mean, that's just. <laughs> You just don't do that anymore. And we didn't need the attorney general of New York to tell us that. Um, or, or even the 11 women who spoke up. We should know that. And the governor should have known not to do it. Um, so, you know, that that is what surprised me about what happened to him. Like helping his brother in the way he did. No, that's not surprising. Even though he shouldn't have done it as a CNN anchor. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, my, 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 uh, my, my, what, what I expect out of a, a, a primetime television anchor is fairly low, but, uh, <laughs> I would, I would, I would say, you know, more, more, more in, in how they handled, you know, their, their, you know, back and forth Abbott and Costello stuff during the, the middle of COVID was stuff where I was like, well, that's not appropriate. Like you, you, you don't, don't know what's happening. Don't even get me started about that. I mean, I loved it right at the beginning, but as it continued, I just said, oh, come on, stop it, stop it, stop it. It's yeah, I mean, ridiculous. look, if it's if it's a cameo in the middle of something, it's that's one thing, right? Like, like the, the, you both have the uh, the last name of one of the most famous politicians in New York state history. Like, it's, it's not going to be a shock that you guys know each other and love each other and blah, 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 and support each other during a hard time. But- Day after day after day after day. Uh, uh, I don't know. And then and then everything that like the worst case scenario of like, oh, well, why not? Well, we found out why not, because because of everything that's kind of happened. Well, uh, can I just, can I just one more thing real quick? Go ahead. My we've talked about Andrew Cuomo and Chris Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio, but my they're just a Chris is not in my book, but mm-hmm. Andrew Cuomo and de Blasio are just a very play a very small role in my book. Mm-hmm. The rest of the book, maybe three chapters. The rest of the book is my about my experiences in Mississippi and then in Washington, D.C., and what happened there with women, men, and power. So I hope people will read my book with that in mind, that I'm not just talking about Andrew Cuomo the whole no. time. Um, re- you know, it's about all the things that I've experienced, both um, in my own romances <laughs> uh, at home in school, in college, in politics in Mississippi, and then in Washington, D.C., which is really the center of, of so many sexual harassment and sexual abuse cases. My Lord, it, it, it never stops uh, pouring out. And of course, New York is the same too. Um, but, but um, you know, I just want people to understand. And now, have you read my book yet? Uh, uh, I, I have, I have not, no, I have, I have not, I have not been able to, to, uh, uh, uh get through the busy. book yet. I know you're busy, but you've got to read it. So I hope you do. Uh, uh, <laughs> now, well, now, now that you've challenged me on the show and people will continue to ask me whether or not I finished it, then, then now, now I will, uh, now, now, now I will, 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 will make more of an effort. That was- that was the reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, that is that is all the maneuverability and effectiveness of somebody who's worked in communications in New York City. Uh, uh, Karen Hinton is, of course, the author of Penis Politics. Uh, uh, you've been amazing, Karen. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us. 
Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. It was edited by me. You can say thank you to Karen Hinton, author of Penis Politics, our guest, uh, by heading on over to px3guest.com. Let's make sure we do this. Uh, uh, Karen was very gracious with her time and uh, uh, was indulgent of the fact that we wanted to have a more politically focused interview. Uh, So, uh, you know, you know how it works. It always feels better when you get compliments online. So if you uh, could help the show by heading on over to px3guest.com. Our email is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. You can watch me live on the internet Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at px3live.com. Share this podcast with your friends and family, px3podcast.com. Our merch is found at politicsmerch.com. You want to hit me off with a little Christmas bonus, a little Christmas bonus? Well, you can give me a one-time donation to paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo is Justin-Young-20, and our cash app is PX3Cash. If you would like to send me something in the P.O. Box, you can do so at P.O. Box 153-184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. And... Man, I'll tell you what. I love everything that comes in the mail, even the puzzling stuff. So a listener by the name of Will in Utah sent me candy bar wrappers. All right? Candy bar wrappers. They are... Uh, uh, so basically if I had a bunch of unwrapped chocolate candy bars, if they all came to me, I would say, well, thank God, no need for anybody to put packaging on these. I have my own candy bar wrappers. So I have the like silver foil part and then the wrapper, what would be on but what you would see in, in the display, if I were to then sell these candy bars at a market and the lead image there says Capitol Hill. And then below it, it says, this is what I think about when you wax nostalgic about those Capitol Hill bars, please don't die. So they are not PX three rappers. They are not Justin Robert Young rappers. They are not even necessarily politically themed, except to say that they have a Capitol Hill logo and a message that this is what the person for whom printed these candy bars. And I guess I'll I'll, I'll say it's from Just Candy. I don't know if uh, if that is if if our uh, uh, our listener here is that's their business, but it's from Just Candy. Uh, Look them up if you need expertly printed candy bar wrappers. (laughs) 
I love it. It's just so good. Send me stuff like that. P.O. Box uh, 153184, Austin, Texas, 78-7-1-5. Of course, the only way that you can get the bonus content is by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And, of course, the $10 tier gets you all that plus your name right at the end of the show because you are part of the Titanic $10 tier. Idris Arslandi and DJ Katie Mack, Meister, Dr. G, Lord Scale, Dakinze, Anile, Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Speed Spicy. 70s TV salesman or spy. D really? And Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dot com junkie. DP for Bungo. Jewish Lives Matter. 100 Mile Runner. Staff Sergeant Poopers. Double K Ranch. Pop Gold. Ye old pinball shop. John Snuffy's off Route 44. Super Zoomy. Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin, and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Chief, Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Richard, D Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike, The Gen, Will, J Pink, and Andrew. If you'd like to join their ranks or just get the bonus podcast, you can do so at Take Politics Seriously. Dot com. Another episode for you on Friday. I think you guys are going to like it. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only program that dares discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.